Hello and welcome to the Gentleman's Journal podcast. I'm Joe Bullmore, the editor of Gentleman's Journal, and our guest on today's episode is Oliver Bullo, the author of Butler to the World, How Britain Became the Servant of Tycoons, Tax Dodgers, Kleptocrats and Criminals. And the book does exactly what it says on the tin, as they probably don't say in Moscow. It tells the story of how, as the British Empire declined, we found a new role for ourselves as a Jeeves to a series of oligarchical Worcesters laundering their reputations, hiding their money offshore, providing them with legal counsel, schools and lordships, and only now realising that perhaps that wasn't always such a good idea. Released just last month in March 2022, it's hard to think of a more timely or poignant book. And in one of my favourite ever episodes of the podcast, I think, Oliver tells us the story of the Ukrainian gas mogul who bought a defunct tube station, how gambling in this country has become our equivalent of the opioid epidemic and the mantra that a school pupil taught him that might just sum up his entire career. Enjoy! But before we begin, I'd love to tell you very briefly about the Gentleman's Journal shop, our new men's style destination full of the independent brands that we love. You can find it at shop.thegentlemansjournal.com. That's shop.thegentlemansjournal.com. Head over there for special, unique releases from a fine curation of brands and plenty of picks and pointers from people in the industry who really ought to know. I'm sure you'll find something you love. Oliver, thank you so much for, for joining us on the Gentleman's Journal podcast. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me on. I've got a, a, a slightly dog-eared copy of your book in front of me, which is a good sign, obviously. I've done my research. But it's an incredible artefact because it couldn't have come out at a better moment. Everyone in this building and Profile Books must be thrilled. But how, how did that come about? And, and is it just pure luck that this came out in March 2020 when the idea of foreign interference in London money has never been more under scrutiny? Obviously, it's an issue yeah. which... I think is very important. The role that Britain has been playing as the enabler, the well-mannered, the well-dressed, the impeccably turned out enabler, but still enabler of crime from all over the world has been something I've been concerned about for ages. I'm, you know, a specialist in the former Soviet Union. I lived in Russia for many years. I've worked in Ukraine a lot. It's very obvious when you're there that the oligarchs use London as their, their laundrette of choice for their dirty money. And therefore, without London, they wouldn't be able to do commit the crimes that they commit, steal yeah. the money that they steal and so on. So it's something I've been concerned about and it's something I've been going on about, banging on about, I think my wife would probably say, <laughs> for quite a long time. It does feel like now it's 2022 and all the people I've been trying to get on the phone for years are suddenly calling me up, Yeah, which is weird. So it does feel like everyone's suddenly talking about this issue, everyone's suddenly singing my song. But I just think that's brilliant because, yeah. you know, it's so important that this is happening and it's so dark that it's been happening for so long that I'm just really pleased yeah. that now everyone suddenly realises how important this is. Could you, if you were starting to write the book now, in the current climate, could, would it have been easier to write it? Would you have got more people on the phone? Would it be a different book? If I was starting to write it now... <laughs> to be honest, by the time it came out, it probably wouldn't be relevant because hopefully all these problems will be solved. But leaving that aside, actually, that, that's a joke. They won't be solved. But the um, but if I was starting to write it now, it, it would be different. 
One of the reasons it would be different is obviously when I sit down to write a book like this or my last book, Moneyland, I'm always slightly thinking about defamation issues. Yeah. Um, the Russian oligarchs, the Ukrainian oligarchs, all oligarchs um, have very good lawyers and they are very skilled at using whatever wrinkles there are in our legal system to try and shut down scrutiny about them. So it's possible that now it will be easier to write about some of the people I want to write about. But, you know, there is, and this sounds a bit sort of Pollyanna-ish, but there is a benefit to being forced to go away from the obvious targets. If I were to sit down and say, I'm going to write about Elisha Usmanov or Roman Abramovich, you know, you'd tell stories that a lot of people would already know. Whereas the fact that I'm saying, no, I'm going to write about, you know, Dmitry Firtash, mm. who is less well-known, or I'm going to write about the misuse of Scottish limited partnerships to move hundreds of billions of dollars out of the former Soviet Union into the Western financial system. You know, these are, these are stories that aren't so well known and actually I think are more important because, you know, it's crucial that the plumbing of mm. kleptocracy is understood, not just the kind of glamorous front people, but also, you know, let's say if it were a band, you know, you might be tempted to write about the lead singer and the lead guitarist, whereas I'm writing about the roadies and the, the lighting rig. Nice. <laughs> you like analogies. And the best analogy in this is obviously the one right on the cover, Butler to the World. To someone who's coming to this cold, can you give the kind of potted summary of, of why that's such a powerful way to think about this? Look, Britain used to be the oligarch, right? We were the aristocrat. We strutted around the world. What, like what Putin's doing right now in Ukraine, if we didn't agree with a country's trade policy, we bombed them until they changed. We don't do that anymore because we can't afford to. We didn't stop being an empire out of the kindness of our heart. We stopped being an empire because we weren't bust. But we still had all the skills. We still had all the networks and the connections and the institutions to, to, mm. to do these things, to move the money. We still knew how to steal money. We just couldn't do it. We weren't strong enough to do it anymore. So if people wanted to do these things, they could just come to us and ask us how and we'd tell them. We could sell them oligarchic services, but without actually being an oligarch ourselves. Mm. Um, that was what we did. If you wanted to move money, we had all the networks for moving money because that's what the empire was. It was a giant money moving machine. Um, so we knew all of that. We just couldn't do it ourselves anymore. So it feels a little bit like an aristocrat who's gone bust. He did, he's had to sell the big house and the place in town and the yacht and the, you know, villa on the Cop Dunteeb and all that. And he's just trying to make a living. You know? mm. And what does he sell? Well, he sells his knowledge of aristocratic circles. He knows how to move in the polite society. He knows what to do and how to behave. And that's what we know. So, yeah. you know, we've gone from being an aristocrat to a butler. And we work for anyone that wants our services. And, you know, in a way, that's what Britain or London in particular provides. You know, we sell oligarchs houses on Eaton Square so they can pretend to be in Bridgerton. Yeah. You know, that's it, right? Or we sell our lawyers, structure their deals and sell and, you know, structure their deals through London so they can, you know, essentially be run in the same way as the East India Company used to be. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's the old business, just we're not doing it for ourselves anymore. And inherent in that idea of butlers is you talk in the earliest chapters about kind of our slightly romanticised idea of Jeeves and Worcester and the gentility of those people. And we feel very warmly about Jeeves. Woodhouse is obviously a beloved author. In that, the kind of the soft skills are important too. The accent of the aristocrat, the way he dresses his tailor. Is that something that's important, the, the fact that we can put on a good show and look decent? Absolutely. I mean, the... The role that we play is, is like a conciliary to a mafia don, right? But 
unlike a consigliere in a mafia film who's got you can see them you know they've got like a one of those vests on and they're sitting in the back room of a restaurant in brooklyn and they're you know eating spaghetti yeah you know, unlike that we're standing up perfectly you know ties straight shoes polished very good sir opening the door all of that it's perfect everything is polite and yeah. it's what you've seen on television it's what you've read in a hundred books that's british style and what i find fascinating is the extent to which this image of britain has spread around the world to the most unlikely places english private schools which were okay some of them predate the empire but most of them were created to educate the administrators for sudan and mm. you know malaya and places tanganyika and now they are branches of these schools in in china a place that we looted you know we're talking of places mm. that we bombarded till they changed their trade policy we bombarded them till they were prepared to buy smack off us you know, and Egypt, the place whose nationalist uprising in the Suez crisis doomed the British Empire and, and, and caused it the greatest humiliation that it ever had. Mm. There is now a branch of Malvern College in Egypt. Yeah. It was opened by Tony Blair. Um, that's amazing. You know, the, uh, the, we've managed to repurpose all of these institutions from educating the administrators of empire to now educating the children of the inheritors of empire. Yeah. Yeah, it is very much about the business and the skills and the ability to structure business trades and hide assets, but it's all done impeccably. Yeah. With a certain panache. Yeah. And, and, and a certain accent and a certain manner. And it, it's all, who else could do this? That's the interesting thing about being the butler to the world. Yeah. The argument that has always been used um, by the defenders of the butler business that if we didn't do it, somebody yeah. else would. So we may as well do it. And on the face of it, that seems totally logical. If the trade is moving dirty money, it, there's always going to be dirty money. So it may as well be us that earns the fees. But actually, if you think about what Britain does and what Britain has, there is no one else that could do this. I mean, the French could have a go, right? But that's it. Yeah. You know, really, who has that kind of, you know, cultural history of sort of... And the schools. The French don't do schools in the same exactly. way, Exactly. Really. I mean, you know, so, I mean, the, the Swiss have a bit of a go, yeah. but then Switzerland isn't, you know, that no one has what we have in terms of this this broad spectrum of, of, of services to sell. Yeah. You know, it, you know, who else can just sell entry to the aristocracy? I mean, mm. literally, the Baron of Siberia, Yevgeny Lebedev. You know, sell it literally a friend of the Prime Minister's mm. who is welcomed into the aristocracy and there he is with his ermine robe sitting on the you know on the red benches yeah um it's extraordinary that's no one else does that no so who, let's talk about some of the, the those kind of characters the kind of tentpole cases that, that prop up this story who to you is the most colorful if you're going to tell one story one character what's the one for you i think in terms of the demonstrating the unique role Britain plays as a recipient of money from anyone, the story of Dmitry Firtash is perfect. He is a, a Ukrainian, uh, certainly multimillionaire, used to be a billionaire, I'm not sure if he still is, who made a huge amount of money going into business with Gazprom, Vladimir Putin's gas company, to essentially overcharge Ukraine, his native country, for gas. Mm -hmm. So he managed to bring down the government, made an absolute fortune for himself in the process, and he needed to do something with that wealth. There isn't very much to buy in Ukraine. Where was he going to spend it? And he brought it to London. And so he went from being unknown, 
No one even knew what he looked like in 2006. To coming here, he set up the British Ukrainian Society mm. with members of the House of Lords and the House of Commons working for it. He gave money to Cambridge University. He is by 2011, so four years after he first arrives here, from unknown to within four years, he's meeting the Duke of Edinburgh um, and, and being in, welcomed into the Guild of Benefactors of Cambridge University, buys himself a mansion for £60 million in Knightsbridge, just down the road from Harrods. By 2014, there's a Ukraine crisis caused by Vladimir Putin, his business partner. Mm. Um, there is a crisis in Ukraine, and he is brought into the Foreign Office to advise the Foreign Office on how to deal with Vladimir Putin. You know, a couple of months previously, he's opened trading on the London Stock Exchange. He's got to meet the Speaker of the House of Commons. I mean, that is vertical social climbing. Yeah. And then in February 2014, the absolute pinnacle of his successful integration, he buys a tube station from the Ministry of Defence. As far as I know, he is the only private citizen to own a tube station. Yeah, it's just extraordinary. The idea that anyone can own a tube yeah. station is so amazing. And it is, I mean, okay, it's a disused tube station, but it's got the platforms, it's got the shafts, it's all there. You could go down and see the tube trains go by if you wanted to. Mm. Um, and it happens to be right next to his mansion. So clearly, you know, he was planning to develop it, you know, whether he says for, as a cultural centre or whatever reason it was, we don't know. But then what's amazing about this tale, which is the purest expression of Britain welcoming absolutely anyone, is that simultaneously to all this happening, the Americans were also interested in his wealth, but not interested in his wealth to accept it, but interested mm. in his wealth to investigate it and to try and prosecute him for it. So two weeks after he buys the tube station, he is indicted on a grand jury charge from the FBI in Illinois, and he has been battling extradition to the US ever since. So yeah. the last eight years, his tube station has just sat there empty. Uh, nothing has happened to it, undeveloped, because he's been trying to prevent himself being sent for trial in the United States. Where is he now then? He's in Vienna. Um, he was arrested in Vienna. So he's in a prison cell? No, he's on, he's on, you know, oh, on bail somewhere. So he, he posted a very large amount of bail. But that distinction between essentially the US and yeah. the UK approaches to that kind of wealth is just astonishingly indicative. And I mean, I, I mean that story, obviously I, try, I told that story because of the flourishes, right? I mean, you know, mm. it's the tube station, it's the, the, the Prince Philip, it's, yeah. it's everything. That's Cambridge what, University. Cambridge University. It's, what, it's, what, it's got all the kind of, yeah. you know, the, the bright spots. But there are so many stories like that of someone who's earned a load of money, who knows where, and then they've brought it here and then all the doors are open because they've got money and they've got the lawyers and they've got the houses and they've got, you know, the political connections. It just repeats itself again yeah. and again and again. And, and it's seems to be a uniquely British phenomenon to accept the money and not be in any way concerned about where it comes from and just to help people to keep it and to structure it in such a way that it's inaccessible for anyone mm. else. And it's profitable. Right? It's a good business model for, you know, not for everyone. It, it doesn't benefit everyone in this country, but a significant chunk of our professional class do really yeah. well out of this kind of business. And you can see why they enjoy it. It's easy money. You know, they can charge really high fees to people like that. Mm. There's a couple of kind of aristocratic or semi-aristocratic figures who help him in that, in his kind of foundation and stuff, and a Tory MP whose names escape me now. Did you reach out to those people? And when you do speak to these people who are kind of complicit in the butlering, do they have a justification? Do they have a line? Yeah, I mean, I, I reached out to everyone I mentioned uh, multiple times. Very few of them got back to me. 
Do they give a a, a response saying no comment or do they just... Ignore. Is there a difference? It's a, is there a real difference or not? Uh, not, I mean, not really. I mean, no, they just ignored me. I mean, you know, it's di- it's difficult. I mean, what can you do? They have an email address. You write to the email address three or four times. They don't reply. You're like, eventually, presumably you think, well, yeah. I don't know how else can I get in touch with these people? You can phone them up and leave a message, but they don't get back to you eventually. You think, well, they don't want to talk to me. But I did, I did speak to John Whittingdale MP. Mm-hmm. Um, he actually rang me up when I was about to go out for lunch with my parents-in-law, which was weird. And I was a bit delayed going out to lunch with them. And his justification was to say, well, you know, he's not been convicted of any crimes. It's a free country. And that's more or less the size of it. And I mean, I can see that that's justification of one kind, but at the same time, one of the reasons he hadn't been convicted of any crimes was because his political ally was running Ukraine. And you don't tend to be convicted in a kleptocracy by your political allies. So to my mind, it's not a very good argument, but then I know Ukraine quite well. If you don't know Ukraine and you just look at it in the face of it, you might think, well, there you go. It's, it's obviously all fine. Um, I did, I spoke to one other parliamentarian who I promised not to name because, you know, they were good enough to speak to me and this was the terms. And, and they said, well, yeah, perhaps I've been a bit of a useful idiot, but I didn't realize at the time. Yeah. And that I thought was a very telling quote. Useful idiot. A useful idiot. Because, you know, I suppose if you're in parliament, people get in touch with you all the time. And if you're interested in Ukraine and there's a British Ukrainian society, then... And it's £40,000 a year for what, a retainer. What's not to like? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, but though it is really interesting because I also spoke to an MP, an ex-MP now called Helen Goodman, who was a Labour MP who had been sort of tasked by the front bench to be their kind of expert on Ukraine. Mm. And so she had done a lot of work on Ukraine and she had been asked to join this society and she'd sort of done four minutes of due diligence and was like, what? No way. I'm not having anything to do with them. Yeah. And so, you know, it's obviously there are some people who don't, who, who just think, well, I don't want to have anything to do with an oligarch. But then there are a lot of people who think, well, it's free trips to Kiev and, you know, what's not to like? Yeah. And, and you know, and that's obviously what underpins an awful lot of the business model. Because if someone hasn't been convicted of a crime, um, then... They're a legitimate business person and mm. they've got a lot of money. Then there's a lot of fees to be earned from selling them property and structuring their deals and all that. And Cambridge University did very well out of it. They created a centre of Ukrainian, Ukrainian studies on the back of yeah. these donations. So, you know, that's where you get, really. Yeah. Are there a huge amount of institutions right now, this month, and people who've worked and lawyers and advisors and people who've just been chummy with these people? who suddenly are sweating a bit because they're thinking this suddenly doesn't look so palatable. And if the ties of public opinion change and people find out about this stuff, my career is over or I just, I look like a, I don't know, some kind of complicit. I'm, I want, I don't want to use the analogy of someone, you know, in the 1930s supporting the national socialist party, yeah. but something like that. Do you know what I mean? If history proves them wrong. It does feel a little bit like that. I mean, I was talking to another journalist yesterday who'd been working on a story and every time he sent a, an email asking for comment on something, he would get a, a very aggressive response from one of our renowned libel specialist law firms, um, you know, not for publication, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, you, you, when you send an email asking for comment, you're, you're literally, you're asking, you want information. You're, this is, you, you want to check what you know and check that you're being accurate. And it's very frustrating if instead of getting any kind of reply, even if it's a no comment, you get a, if you so much as mention us, we're going to sue you and all that mm. to the to the moon and back. It's just, it, it seems unfair, right? Because you're yeah. not, you're, you're doing the right thing 
you're being kind of a responsible journalist by asking them for comment. And they use the fact that you're being responsible to then shut, to then tie you up in legal process forever. Anyway, it's frustrating. So he's, he sent a, a, a letter to, you know, one of the oligarchs and had been doing it for a while and get these letters back from law firms. And then uh, as of last month, suddenly the responses were coming back from the office of the oligarch and the law firm clearly decided they didn't want anything to do with wow. them anymore. So they dropped him. So they dropped him. And you do, I'm hearing, you know, bits about this. I mean, there was a, um, the law firm who was acting for Yevgeny Prigozhin, who is a Russian, they call him Putin's chef. He's supposedly very close to Putin, though he, he denies being any any kind of bad thing at all. But but he's, you know, is, is connected to all sorts of misdeeds and has been written about a lot by Elliot Higgins, who started Bellingcat, the um, yeah. um, open source investigative uh, agency. And he was being sued by Prigozhin and their law firm has asked, you know, is, is not didn't want anything to do with Prigozhin anymore, so he's asked to be removed wow. from the case. So there clearly is a, a suddenly a kind of degree of taint yeah. around these people. But without meaning to be too sort of annoying about it, I do want to say, how did you not know? Right? I mean, they they're the same people. Yeah. You know, they, just because Putin's invaded Ukraine hasn't they haven't changed at all. They're the no. same people. They earned their money in the same way. We knew what, five, 10, 15 years ago, what these people were like. Yeah. So how is it now you're realising? Of course. And it's frustrating. I mean, there is an element of, you know, while the music's playing, keep dancing, but stand near the door about it, right? I mean, they are, you know, while, while, while the business is flowing, you don't want to miss out on it because if no. you don't do it, your client, your rivals will get it. But I don't know, it seems sort of dispiriting that that is always the attitude, that, yeah. that they don't seem to think we just don't want that business no i think there's probably a few private members clubs in mayfair as well on the other end of things who might be, i don't know they're going to suddenly purge their list but yes so uh, it's very hard for us because obviously by our own design by the butler's own design this stuff is opaque and it gets very tricky and very conceptual very quickly you've solidified a lot of it in this book but the problem is at some point people just think oh, i can't deal with this and the average person thinks this is not a concern that i can even conceive of fixing what are some of the tangible ways that it affects them how do we make people really care about this well it has got a lot easier to make people care since we've seen what's happened in Mariupol and Bucha and all the other you know horror fields in in northern and eastern Ukraine you know we can see what oligarchy does to people who just want to be free um but it has been hard for a long time to make this case to interest people who aren't obsessives about Eastern Europe like I am. We have been running for a while and are about to start running again the London Kleptocracy Tours, which yeah. were an attempt by a group of us to essentially make it impossible for British people to say we didn't know. Yeah, because oligarchs have been bringing their money here for ages. They've been investing it in London property, in London you know, institutions, in football clubs, whatever. And one of the things that whenever there's an upheaval and a revolution, everyone goes, oh God, we had no idea. You know, so the idea of the kleptocracy tours is by pointing out, say, that house belongs to that Russian politician, that house belongs to that oligarch, that house and belongs to that. And here's what they did. And here's where the money. money comes from. And, you know, and here's their, how they moved it here. And here's why we shouldn't be accepting it. It's just a way that you can basically take away the option of people being able to say we yeah. didn't know because they did know because we told them. And you make it tangible. It's not like a yeah. trust or an offshore. Yeah, it's, it's a house. That, property right there you know yeah. that duplex apartment overlooking the river thames two minutes walk from the ministry of defense that belongs to the former russian deputy prime minister there it is bang 
but we would talk about this and we would always debate, you know, among, among those of us who were kind of the tour guides, how do you make people care? You say, and we'd say, well, property prices, right? You know, it's Britain, everything comes back to property prices. It's like, you know, this is, because these people are bringing this money here, everything's more expensive and we can't afford it. And obviously that's true, but none of us could have afforded to live in Knightsbridge anyway, let's no, face it. No. It wasn't like it was an option in the 1970s. So, so I mean, not that I was around, but, you know, how do you explain it beyond that? And I think the point I always make is that an oligarch doesn't stop being an oligarch just because he's flown from Moscow to London. You know, you get off your private jet at Biggin Hill and you want the same things you wanted at home. You know, you want special treatment from politicians. You want special treatment from the law courts. You want to muzzle the media. You want to be able to, you know, monopolize particular businesses. You want to be able to shut down your business rivals. All of those things which you can get at home, they're going to try and get here. And we are seeing that happening. You know, there are some, you know, very disturbing stories about you know, money now going into political parties and the favours coming back because of it. A lot of which is is sort of creeping out in alarming ways. And I think there'll be a lot more of that in the next two or three years. You know, the um, misuse of defamation proceedings against journalists like Catherine Belton and Tom Burgess, um, Carol Cadwallader and, and others is really alarming. The, the costs which are hanging over people if they lose are terrifying. Yeah, there's no wonder people stop. And the, now something I'm writing about at the moment, the misuse of data protection um, rules in order to try and sort of create a kind of extra side to defamation proceedings. You know, the, the way that oligarchs sue each other in London courts with these incredible legal bills, you know, so they can deny fair courts to, to ordinary Russians in Russia because they get fair courts here. You know, all of that creates a skewed system in this country, just like it does there. And once corruption begins, it's very hard to undo it. Um, you know, once you lose the honest political system, then returning to honesty is really hard. And so, you know, I think that's the case I keep trying to make and get across to people that, you know, we need to be really aware of what we're selling yeah. when we sell oligarchs a bit of our country. We're not welcoming an immigrant who's going to come and work here and just become an ordinary law-abiding citizen. We are bringing in a new aristocrat who's going to strut around and demand special treatment. Yeah. And we give them special treatment. For a long time, we've been selling them visas on special terms. You know, we, we sell them some tax treatment on special terms. We sell them shell companies that allow them to hide their ownership of their property. They don't live like ordinary people. They no. don't have to. And that is a real problem. If we're supposedly, if you're a democracy, everyone is supposed to be treated the same. And, you know, that's the basis of it. And obviously there will always be a degree of unfairness, but this is institutionalized. Yeah. And that is what I think is the downside of the butlering business model. It is very profitable for a small section of our society and they love it. But for the rest of us, essentially, it means that, you know, the birthright of, of every British person is being sold, you know, so these people can make a living. So let's talk about the, the process of writing the book. You mentioned there Catherine Belton and Putin's People, which is her book. I think it came out 2020. Yes. And is notable because of, as you say, the legal proceedings against it, which almost crippled the publisher. And it makes the stakes very high to write something like this. Is it a big consideration for you when you're, every sentence you write, you're thinking, I mean, before you've even got to legal checks, you're thinking, God, is this going to take down a publishing house? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it, 
that that kind of censorship that is caused by the defamation proceedings is just it becomes totally baked into the entire conception of the book. So, you know, I think if there are multiple people I can write about as an example of telling a story, I will look which one of them is dead because yeah. they're not going to sue me. Okay, oh look, they're dead. Brilliant. I can say what I like. You know, or you know, which of these is least likely to sue me? Or and you know, if or shall I anonymize this? And and it is, yeah, it is it, all the way through. So it isn't just a process of I, if I write. This isn't like I have a, a drawer full of chapters which I've written and do, they're all perfectly no. researched. And then I think actually, no, I'm not going to do that because it happens right at the beginning. I don't. I would. I'm not even going to try and tell that story because there's just no point. Now, you know, Catherine, who's a very old friend of mine, we would with mates in Moscow. Um, you know, she is incredibly brave, like ludicrously brave, and a very, very, very good journalist. She worked on that book for years and years and years. Um, and it is amazing that she, you know, came through that case unscathed yeah. and the book remains very largely unchanged. They made a few, you know, cosmetic changes to it, but essentially it's the same book. But that cost her a year of her life, you know, fighting that case. Yeah, incredibly stressful. It cost HarperCollins with two and a half million pounds yeah. to fight that case. And and had they gone all the way to trial, both in the UK and in Australia, it probably could have cost them 10 million pounds. That who can afford that? Yeah. And it is very stressful and disturbing. I mean, it is, to be honest, one of the, for me, heartening signs of uh, the response to the current crisis in Ukraine, that the government is now very seriously talking about bringing in rules to prevent those kind of mm. cases. When, when, a, when journalism or publication has very, very clear public interest, you know, as I hope mine do, then there's a, at an early stage, the judge can just cut a process short and say, this, we're not going to carry on here. Because the problem in Britain is everything's so expensive. You know, I'm being sued in Portugal at the moment by the vice president of Angola over something I wrote about him and his daughter, who spent a lot of money on wedding dresses. And hopefully I won't lose. And if I do, it will be very expensive. But so far, uh, the process has cost, I think, just under €10,000, which bless the European Commission and the Rory Peck Trust, they've helped me pay that, which is wonderful. But €10,000 is a lot of money, and I don't want to have to pay €10,000. And are you personally liable? Um, well, I will be if I lose. But if that case had been in Britain, right, and we've got to the point where right now, we'd be down, what, £150,000? You know, just before, just to get to trial, we haven't even started yet. And you look at that, so well, who, no one can afford that. You just settle immediately, you know. So, yes, Harper Collins can. Yeah, it's Rupert Murdoch. And the joy of, you know, having Rupert Murdoch on your side is, is he'll fight your corner. The Daily Mail will fight those cases. But very few newspapers or, or publications can afford to do that. And that, it's a real problem. And, and it's one of the most powerful aspects of the interlocking defences of the Butler system is the libel system. Because it, it doesn't only affect... Journalists also affect so the due diligence industry that does work to, to look into the origins of people's fortunes and so on. It, it's across the board. It prevents information coming out and therefore prevents investigations into what's really going on. So are there things which you would have put in this book? Are there case studies and people that you would have written about that you just thought from the start, I'm not going near it? Uh, it, it didn't really work that way because I think what can I write about? So I don't, yeah. I don't think, or I don't, the I, ideal I, you thing? know, I don't think I'd love to write about that because you know what? I, what's the point in that? No. I mean, it, I just think, well, what can I write about? And then I think, well, you know, that's a great story. I'll tell that story. You know, I can get the same. I can make the same point with that story as I could make with a story about oligarch X. So I'll just do that story. Mm. And to be honest, just temperamentally, I've never been interested in telling the same stories as everyone else. Anyway, I like telling random 
kind of obscure stories. Mm. I have a temperamental weakness for countries with Zs in them. Uh, you know, Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, Abkhazia, uh, Azerbaijan, places like that. I love them. And it is a source of lasting frustration to me that editors don't like them and I could not be less interested in them as a rule, that I had to make a rule for myself that editors don't care about countries with Zs in. And I needed to keep telling myself that and to stop trying to pitch. Yeah, this amazing story from, you know, yeah. Uzbekistan. And everyone's like, sorry, where? Don't care. But if you can link it to Russia. Well, exactly. Everything's about, if you can tell, whereas if I say, I've got a great story about Roman Abramovich, everyone's like, brilliant. How many yeah. words can you do? You know, I've had, in the last fortnight, six, seven editors get in touch with me and ask me to write about Roman Abramovich. I'm like, I don't know anything about him. I've never looked into him. It's never occurred to me I'd be able to publish an article about him because of his litigious no. reputation. Yeah, and that's the story with all of these oligarchs. But also there's an element of just a sort of temperamental orneriness, which is that everyone's interested in him, so I'm going to yeah. be interested in something else. And we feel like we kind of know well, that story. Yeah, it's a I more mean, public one. Also, I'm just a, I'm just a difficult person. <laughs> like, I mean, I genuinely, I've always been just more interested in telling stories about things that other people mm. aren't talking about. Well, that leads me on to my next question. You mentioned that Catherine Belton is, you said she's very brave. Yeah. Forget about legal proceedings. Are you ever personally worried for yourself? Because these people, by their nature, aren't very pleasant. Um, I mean, there have been a couple of sort of weird incidents. I had one incident when I was working on a story that actually got, did get, I, it got all the way to the legal process, got past me, got past the editors, and then the editors squashed it, which is very frustrating because it was a great story about sanction-dodging oligarchs. And I'd got in touch with them and asked for comment and they invited me to meet them. And I said, great, where do you want to meet? And they said, Milan. I was like, mm. Milan. And I was like, yeah. And I was like, I'm not going to meet you in Italy. Absolutely no way. It's just, I was like, I'll meet you in London. I'll meet you in Paris. Why is my Milan? Why is that bad, worse than Paris? Well, you know, the whole, they, they had strong mafia connections, okay. if you put it that way. I mean, I, you know, I'm being a little bit careful what I'm talking about, but, but yeah, this particular oligarch had very strong mafia connections. So I was like, I'm no way going to Italy. It's just not going to happen. So I was like, Paris, I'll meet in Paris. It's fine. I, I'll meet you in Amsterdam. I'll meet you in London, if you like. But they were like, no, it's going to be Italy. And I was like, I'm not going to Italy. No yeah. way. So, you know, you do get a little bit of that. Um, but in London, do you ever get, do you ever see people in cars? And I, I mean, I'm not, you know, I tend to assume that if anyone wants to, you know, if anyone really, really cares, they'll just do it. So why worry about it, really? <laughs> I mean, but I used to, I'm not, That's, yeah. but, I, but, I, but then I used to be, you know, in my early days as a journalist, I wanted to be a war reporter because everyone does. And I used to go to Chechnya a lot. And there was a series of horrible, you know, atrocities committed by the Chechens and by the Russians and these sort of brutal days and it was a lot of being shot at and intimidated by the security services and you know routed up and put in windowless rooms and shouted at and it was sort of did get a bit wearing and this is a, this is a lot less scary than that yeah you know you so, can write this from yeah exactly you know and also it, it's a lot easier to justify to my wife I can remember one particular time in Vladikavkaz, which is a Russian city in the south of Russia, when I was being ostentatiously intimidated by the FSB, I presume the FSB, I didn't ask. And everywhere I went, there would be three cars following me. Every shop I went into, there would be nine guys would come in and stand in a ring behind me. And every time I went out, I would be arrested and taken and 
interrogated and the hotel kept inverted commas losing my passport so which in russia if you go out without a passport it's you know it's a crime so it was just dispiriting so am i being followed by people i doubt it i mean why would they bother you know there's not this what would they find out you know, I don't know. Like they might think you've got another book in you that's going to be worse, or the next one. <laughs> I don't know. No, the next book I'm going to write. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I'm tempted to write about something completely different, though. I suspect I won't. Yeah. It's, it's you know, it's quite addictive writing about yeah. this stuff because it's so, you know, there's a sort of adrenaline rush to to poking, yeah. you know, the cornet's nest. The Orwell Prize has a, um, yeah, the Orwell Prize. Yeah. It's like yeah, it's like a political writing prize and they organized these seminars for sit form colleges and i went and did this really i did a, a couple of seminars for a sit form college in neath I'm, I'm from wales and it was so cool these kids were just brilliant and they were asking you know why be a journalist and we were going around you know why be a journalist and there were lots of people people said do it for money i'm like yeah, good luck with that and um <laughs> and there were lots of reasons and and then and someone, someone just came up with this idea, be a journalist for pissing off gits. And I was like, that? Yeah, yeah be that. Be, you know, that's why I'm a journalist, because like pissing off okay. gits. That's, that, that's so, what gets you up. Yeah, that's what gets me up in the morning. The most amazing thing about this book, well, not amazing, the thing that struck me is that so often you kind of give a glimmer of hope and then in a few paragraphs later extinguish it. The, the unexplained wealth order, which of course made big headlines and probably we all know about, seems like an amazing tool. And then there's not enough money really to use it. And then there's the SARs and things like that. Um, all of these things are all great on the face of it. But when it comes to pragmatics, we just don't fund enough. We don't care enough. The mechanics don't actually work. Has this writing this and the more you dig into it, does it make you very jaded about the world? Do you, do you more, I don't know, dour than you were before? Well, you know what? I, I have a very good friend in, she's not in Ukraine at the moment, she's in Warsaw, um, but she's Ukrainian and normally in Kiev. And she runs an organization called the Anti-Corruption Action Center and is one of the bravest, most resourceful, most awesome people I know. Mm. And Daria Kalinyuk, she's called, I don't know if you remember, when Boris Johnson gave a press conference in Warsaw about six weeks ago and, and a Ukrainian woman stood up and said, yeah. harangue, anyway, that's her. Oh, wow. Yeah, she she's amazing. And I asked her essentially the same question once. It's like, how do you not get depressed? Because, mm. you know, writing about corruption in this country is bad. Writing about it in Ukraine, damn. I mean, you know, yeah. it's really depressing. I mean, her, her colleague Vitaly's house had just been burnt down. It was, you know, it was hard times. And uh, and she, so I said, how do you not get depressed about the fact that, you know, there's, there's still corruption? And she goes, I don't really think about it like that. She said, you know, yes, there's corruption and the situation's really bad and the bad guys are much more powerful than we are and there are more of them and few of us. But... I don't think about beating it 100%. I say, we're now at 4%, and my aim is to get to 5 If we can get to 5 I'll look around and think, am I going to carry on? Mm. And if I do, I'll try and get to 6 But that's it. And so I sort of see it like that, really. So if I write a book about this, and it gets read by people, and then they think this is something that they care about, and if it gets read by politicians and they mention it in Parliament, and if it gets read by law enforcement agencies and they get more concerned about corruption then, you know, that's good. You know, that's, it might not get us from four to five, but it might get us from four to 4.2. Mm. You know, and that's, you know, that's positive direction. So I, I, I don't, I try not to look at, the whole, you know, the whole battlefield and look at the, the hordes of orcs 
charging down on you know Minas Tirith and instead think well you you're know you're an archer the, with one you, arrow exactly bang. or the riders of Rohan are doing well over there okay. so you know I just focus on that yeah you know? and and maybe just maybe you know if 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 you can win this bit of the battlefield you can use it to attack that bit and then mm. gradually you'll you'll suddenly yeah suddenly you keep going and you know and and situation improves but you're right I, I you know full disclosure this is a very depressing book yeah. um yeah, a lot of the stories do turn out to be quite depressing. And actually, some of them I kind of knew in advance the broad parameters of the story and researching it turned out to be way worse than I thought it was. I think the story in the book which shocked me the most was the story of Gibraltar. I was yeah. looking for an example of how Britain's butlering industry and this, you know, essentially helping people with money to evade regulations, how it harmed British people. Because, you know, it's difficult. If if the victims are, there, are always non-British, it's difficult to make the case that, yeah. well, why should we care? Like, so that they're foreigners, let them suffer. That's, you know, I paraphrase, but that seems to be the main political argument. So I was looking for an example of something that, in which, you know, Britain's butlering had harmed Britain itself. And I wanted to write about Gibraltar because it has a tax haven shell company industry. And I thought I'd go there and write a bit about that. And when I got there, I discovered the gambling, yeah. the way that gambling is run via Gibraltar and the way that Gibraltar, by providing a loophole for British gambling companies, had managed to upend completely the entirety of British gambling regulation and had essentially thereby allowed British gambling companies to create this epidemic of gambling addiction yeah. that we have now. It is incredible like as when i was researching it i just couldn't believe what i was seeing and how did i not know this yeah. how did no how did how does no one know this and one of the if it was a crack epidemic for example, exactly or an opioid one which yeah. obviously is written about in america exactly it, it is our equivalent yeah. of, the, of the oxycontin epidemic yeah. you know this gambling epidemic that's happening now is so harmful and is affecting so many people and so much money is yeah. being wagered and it just goes up you know up and up and up every single year and that's because of gibraltar and it wouldn't be happening without gibraltar and no one knows and no one apparently cares mm. and i you know i did think that when the book came out and this is before the ukraine crisis began and i was discussing with the guys in the in the publishing house mm. about you know what were the angles to try and pitch to the media as the, yeah. as the most kind of shocking things. And I was always saying, well, look, let's hit them with Gibraltar because everyone will be amazed by that. And it hasn't caught anyone's attention because of the Ukraine crisis, which, which is fine because the Ukraine crisis is obviously a crisis on a totally different scale, yeah. and a different degree of significance. And the, and the harm that it's causing is, is obviously in a different level of horror. But I do think that, I do hope that, you know, with time people will read the bit about Gibraltar mm. and think that we need to do something about the way our tax havens are essentially providing these loopholes for harmful yeah. business practices to be used, not just against Britain, but against, you know, because Gibraltar gambling companies operate all over the place. It's pretty grim. There's, there's lots of kind of lovely little tidbits, but just small things like the fact that the gambling industry force football matches to kick off what 15 minutes later so they could get over their halftime ad breaks could be after 9 p.m yeah so i mean i remember noticing that happening and i didn't realize why it's now you can't every single advert is harry redknapp selling you gambling and betting odds and things I mean, it, the transformation from what it was like 
when I was a kid, yeah. what gambling was like. This, you know, book, neighborhood bookies, booking almost shops. wholesome. Yeah, well, but but so also sort of like a prison, you know, yeah, like with weird, the windows painted windows. off, and you, you know there were no Even tellies. Kid, in, yeah, 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 there was no tellies in there. Like if you went in there. You know, you could you just went into the make a bet. There was no yeah. there's no reason to hang around. You Get didn't, didn't socialise in there. You couldn't buy a cup of tea or 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 there were no you know fi- fixed on betting terminals or anything. It was just getting get out. And then it was the transformation is is as a result of mm. the essentially leverage that Gibraltar gave booking companies to dodge taxes. And then the bookies had an argument to make to to the government that they need to change the regulation. Yeah. And and it's. Again, Britain compares unfavorably to America. I'm coming across like a like a massive America fanboy, and America has got huge money problems of its own. Obviously, particularly in terms of the amount of money and how much money goes into politics. But you know, in terms of how they approached gambling, at the same time as Britain did, they also just discussed deregulating gambling, and they had a presidential commission looked into it very seriously for two years and said, "No, we don't think we will. The harm it causes will be." at least equal to any good that comes out of it. So no, we won't do that. And that was it. Uh, and so it didn't happen. You know, obviously they have casino towns in Las Vegas and, and Atlantic City and so on, but, and on, on uh, you know, Native American uh, reservations, but, you know, it's relatively small scale and yeah. it's contained. Whereas what Gibraltar did is it just unleashed that across the whole country. Yeah. You know, and what's crazy about it is it's not like Gibraltar is like going to Macau. Right, you don't go yeah. there. It's not the whole place isn't just flashy, like you know, casinos everywhere. You, it, you wouldn't, you can't see it. It's just like a financial services industry. There's like a couple of bookmakers, like like ones that you get here, and there's a floating casino, like for the tourists, like a little thing, yeah. and that's it. And yet, the entire industry and the entire economy is based on gambling. It's another example of our everyday lives, the fabric of everyday lives being affected by this. Uh, I mean, can we end on a, a positive? Is it possible to end on a positive yeah, note? Yeah, it, it, is, it is possible, particularly at the moment. Um, there is a debate happening around our role as a national enabler of oligarchs, which hasn't happened before and is really positive. Um, it's not gone nearly as far as I'd like, but then I'm quite hard line. So it would be weird if it had, right? Even if it had, I'd want it to go further. But things which have come in like uh, imposing transparency on offshore-owned property, they haven't done a very good job of it, but they have done it. That would have been inconceivable just two months ago. Uh, And that has now happened. The unexplained wealth orders, some of the problems which were highlighted, which I write about in there, have been solved. Some of them, not all of them, but some. There will be more funding for the National Crime Agency coming in, which is good. So, you know, there are positive changes. There is discussion of rules to limit abusive defamation cases and data protection cases, which is also really good. So, you know, if there is a silver lining in the very dark cloud that is the Ukraine crisis, it is that in Britain we are waking up to the damage we have done to other countries and to ourselves by unquestioningly moving and accepting suspicious wealth. But having been positive for a bit, you know, we need to recognise that at the moment we have a government that, or a prime minister anyway, to whom this does not come naturally. You know, uh, two years ago, Parliament's Intelligence and Security Committee produced a report on the danger caused by Russian wealth in the UK. It's not a sensational report at all. You can read it. It's very sensible. It lays out various policies which they've just implemented. 
Boris Johnson tried to suppress it. And then when it finally came out, he dismissed it as an attempt to delegitimize Brexit. Nothing to do with Brexit. It's very frustrating that that's what his response was. Very little to do with Brexit. I think mentioned it twice. You know, this is a man who elevated the son of a senior KGB agent to the House of Lords. You know, they continue to take uh, political donations from wealthy people with very extensive business ties to Russia and have been taking them even when those ties have been exposed. So there's a way to go. But, you know, we've started down the road in a way that I wouldn't have thought possible two months ago. And that's good. So, no, I'm not completely negative, but I suppose my issue is that I lived in Russia and travelled widely in the former Soviet Union during my kind of formative years in my late teens and 20s. And I love the place. You know, I love living there. I adore it. And the oligarchs have really, really fucked it up. And it's horrible what they've done to Russia. And it's horrible what they've done to Russians and Ukrainians and Azeris and Kazakhs and Kyrgyz and everyone. And I don't want that here because it's grim. There's just nothing to be said for it. You know, I think for a long time we've thought of oligarchs as sort of slightly comic. You know, they buy football clubs and they, you know, have gold toilets and so on. And they're nasty, vicious mobsters. And, you know, there's nothing to be said for them at all. And we don't want them here. And the good thing is that if we don't have them here, it will stop them being able to be such good mobsters. It's not just if we don't let them here, they'll be able to go and operate somewhere else. They wouldn't be able to. Nowhere else can do what we can do. Britain is the biggest butler in the world. And if we deny them our services, they won't be able to find the same services anywhere else because no one else could be able to do that. So we have a real opportunity to make the world a better place and make our country a better place. And it would be so great if we took it. Absolutely. Oliver, thank you so much. It is at times a depressing book, but it's immensely entertaining. And I'm telling everyone to read it. It seems so timely, so prescient. It should be required reading in schools and offices everywhere. I don't, that's a bit extreme maybe. but I had a, um, I had a uh, review in the Times that called it highly readable, but extremely depressing. And I thought, oh, there you go. I'll put that on my tombstone. <laughs> Oliver, amazing. Thank you so much. Pleasure. Well, if you enjoyed that episode of the Gentleman's Journal podcast, you'll almost certainly love the Gentleman's Journal magazine, the world's finest dispatch from the front line of luxury, entrepreneurship and style. In fact, Lucky podcast listeners like you now get 20% off our annual subscription. Just enter the code POD20 at thegentlemansjournal.com to find out more.